Hello, Starry and Decisis listeners. It's Camille here. For this episode, you'll be hearing a new voice. We handed the interview mic over to one of our podcast volunteers, and his name is Patrick McDermott. I hope you enjoy. I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on the unceded territories of the Songhee, Esquimalt, and Wasainich nations. It is important to understand this episode in its historical context. Colonialism is a current, ongoing process, and I think it is helpful to keep that context in mind when considering environmental issues, as is the case in today's episode. Today we will be speaking with Calvin Sanborn, who is Senior Counsel at the University of Victoria Environmental Law Centre. He and his team recently wrote a report investigating Keurig's advertising, which claimed the K-Cup pods could be recycled. On January 6th of this year, the Competition Bureau of Canada ruled that Keurig would have to pay a $3 million penalty for these false and misleading claims. So, hello, Professor. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to meet with me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'd just like to start off with um, some introductions. So, what is your position here at UVic? So, for years, I've been the legal director of the Environmental Law Center, and now I'm gradually transitioning into becoming a senior counsel, more of a mentoring role. And what is the role of the Environmental Law Center at UVic, and what kinds of work uh, does the center generally do? Okay, so, so the role is to uh, give law students an opportunity to serve clients. So uh, it's a, a clinical experience where the law students are actually retained by clients to do legal work. And um, the great thing about it is that it brings together law students that want to do environmental work with people that are activists and community groups, environmental groups, both local, national, and international, and First Nations. Uh, And we do work on um, a whole wide variety of environmental issues, which involves a, a tremendous variety of legal issues, like the practicing environmental law, you, you have to be conversant in a whole variety of legal fields from contract law to property law to Aboriginal law to uh, consumer protection law, as in this instance. So that's a good transition into one of the recent cases, the $3 million settlement with Keurig. And so what I've heard is this kind of began with uh, editorial that you co-authored with Margaret Atwood. What is the story behind that and how did that lead to an investigation of Keurig? So the Environmental Law Center has been working on plastic issues for a number of years, starting with Megan Partridge, who was a student of several years ago that wrote uh, seven reforms to address marine plastic pollution. And then we, we did a report to the federal government uh, arguing that they had jurisdiction to ban single-use plastics. And we met with the Federal Minister of Environment at the Environmental Law Center offices here, along with some members of other parties. And they all agreed to do uh, a national plastic strategy. And so as that uh, movement for a national plastic strategy moved through Parliament, Gord Johns put forward a private member's bill calling for a national plastic strategy, and about 150,000 people supported that call online, including Margaret Atwood. And so we, we contacted Margaret Atwood and said, well, you support this reform thing that we're, the ELC is pushing. Uh, would you be interested in writing an article 
about the need for it, and she agreed. So she and I uh, wrote a, an article in the Globe on the, the need for this national plastic strategy. And the very next day, the president of Keurig wrote me a letter saying, oh, Mr. Sanborn, <laughs> Keurig has uh, it, the solution to part of this strategy. We want to be part of this reform. And that's when I looked at the Keurig ads and the Keurig products, which are patently not <laughs> environmentally friendly. And uh, you can just see it in the faculty room with the, the big cardboard box that overflowed every week with all these coffee pods. Um, and we looked at the ads and we thought, oh, these ads are misleading. And this is against the law. We're, we're <laughs> lawyers and law students. We should, we should do something about this. So uh, Kevin Kisser was taking the Environmental Law Center course. And um, he was a second year student. So he took on the, the um, the job of making the case that uh, that the advertising for the curry coffee pods uh, broke the Competition Act uh, provisions on misleading advertising. So they basically what curry was saying was they had the packages that said that the the pods were recyclable, and the, and they also on the packages and in their ads said peel, dump, toss, and then recycle. That, and, and they actually had ads that, that showed it as simple as peeling off the, the foil top, dumping the, the coffee one way, like the guy actually had his wrist tied together so he could just dump it into compost and then dump the, the pod without washing it, just into a blue box. Well, if you do that, you create all this contamination. You, you have a blue box that's got plastic in it, but it's all polluted, <laughs> it's contaminated with the coffee grounds and the tin foil. So um, it was pretty clear that this violated the law. I mean, the, the, the law says that, uh, that it's prohibited to make a false or misleading material statement of fact in, in promoting a product, in promoting your business interests. So Kevin wrote this up and actually did the research showing that, that not only was that process of dump, you know, peeling dumping and then tossing inconsistent with good environmental practice, it actually was barred in most recycling systems in Canada. In fact, most recycling systems in Canada outside of BC and Quebec just say don't put these pods in recycling at all. Now in BC you can recycle them, but the recycling authorities say, okay, you have to wash them out. You, you can't just dump in the coffee grounds and, and you have to get the tinfoil off. So you actually have to go through all these steps that actually make it less convenient for making a cup of coffee than, than a bodum, for sure. So uh, Kevin did the, the slogging work of going through and uh, identifying what the rules were in cities across Canada and, and showing that all, there were all these cities, most places did not allow them at all. And then he went through where, where they did allow them and showed that what was uh, recommended in, in those cities was this careful process of cleaning them out, which was not included in their ads, which basically said just peel, dump, and toss. So the, the most uh, critical piece of evidence that was really helpful to us was that the city of Toronto had been dealing with this problem and had, had actually done a report, the solid waste department there had done a report identifying the advertising as a problem and saying, look, this advertising 
is causing people to throw these things into the blue bin where they shouldn't be. They're going to contaminate our plastic. And they, they pointed out that it was actually costing Toronto thousands of dollars and that they were at risk of multi-million dollar penalties because if you get your plastic uh, above a certain percentage of contamination, then they're subject to multi-million dollar penalties by the people that are buying the recycled plastic. So it was very helpful to us that the, the head of uh, solid waste in Toronto had uh, made public statements in the media calling for this advertising to come to a halt. So it wasn't just a pure false advertising thing, it was actually environmental advertising that was causing environmental harm. <laughs> it was kind of a perfect set of facts to bring that kind of false advertising case. So um, I just wanted to ask how these damages are generally assessed in uh, these kinds of cases where you have this kind of false advertising and then representations that lead to these environmental damages. Yeah, well, you know, they haven't been assessed often enough. I mean, that's one of the reasons why this is a significant case, is that there, there aren't a lot of these environmental claim cases where, where big penalties have been imposed. But I think I should clarify that, you know, people talk about the $3 million. The penalty for Curry was far more than $3 million because they had to pay $3 million as an administrative penalty. They also had to pay $800,000 as a contribution to an environmental charity. They had to pay $85,000 in costs. And then they were required to buy advertising, prominent advertising, repeated prominent advertising in 22 newspapers across the country, including the Globe and Mail and the National Post. And, and they had to spend the money to change all their advertising to correct the misleading advertising on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all the social media outlets. And, they, and then they had to change their website to have a thing at the top of their website notifying people about the misleading advertising finding of the Competition um, Bureau. So that, that was a, a lot of money just paying for those ads. And, and then there was the, the whole cost to their business uh, it's not really great advertising to be advertising that you've, you've been <laughs> doing misleading advertising. Your whole shtick is how green you are. But now the story is, well, actually, your ads were misleading. And we, oh, and they also had to email everybody in their database to notify them of the finding. That's the thing that uh, I got a, a message from a University of California law professor who was very impressed with the not, not necessarily the amount of the penalty, but the corrective statements that were required, the publication requirements. And to me, those are way more important because that's probably going to cost the company way more than $3 million, <laughs> just the, the loss of reputation. Yeah. So given how few of these greenwashing cases have been made, do you think this judgment is a bit of an outlier or rather represents a trend towards this kind of accountability? Well, we're thinking it's going to be a trend. Just uh, last week, the Competition Tribunal issued a statement inviting consumers to be on the lookout and to make reports so that they are getting serious about this. And we hope to, to make it a trend because you can't really protect the environment if companies can mislead consumers. Because what it does is it, it actually leads to market failure. You know, if you think about economics, that if you have 
false information or misleading information in the marketplace, it skews the market and it can't be a rational market. But if you have truth in the marketplace and truth, true advertising, actually green purchasing, like consumers making decisions to choose a, a greener product and not choose a, a product that's less environmentally sound, that that can actually perform the function of rewarding green manufacturers and punishing or disciplining polluting manufacturers, and that can shift the market and it actually can lead to good environmental results. So false advertising laws are super important. They've always been important to have truth in advertising just as a general legal principle. But, but I think that we can now argue that greenwashing advertising and the penalizing of greenwashing advertising is, is an essential function of environmental protection. That truth in advertising is actually an environmental protection measure. And, and also the fact that uh, there are a number of these false advertising uh, actions going forward in uh, San Francisco, you know, Keurig is being sued in a class action suit there. And the fact that uh, more and more complaints are being filed, EcoJustice has brought this complaint against the flushable wipes that may be screwing up sewage systems, and that's still being considered. So. I think that there's a, a real potential here, which is why we're uh, asking the students at the Researchathon to come up with a good set of facts. We know there are a lot of facts out there, fact patterns out there. We know from the, the international study by all the consumer protection agencies in the world that estimated that 40% of greenwashing claims were uh, misleading. So there's, it's a target-rich environment, and there are a lot of cases and I think it's got the potential where people could even think about uh, doing a legal practice of specializing in misleading advertising cases, you know, like a Ralph Nader kind of practice. And it would be a useful practice because you'd be trying to bring truth into the marketplace and, and truth into uh, environmental protection measures. So maybe this isn't something you can quite speak to at the moment, but are there any other companies that you're currently researching for similar kinds of advertisements, false advertisements? Yeah, we've had a few people come to us already with complaints, and, uh, and we are investigating uh, some of those complaints. And, and I know that uh, uh, EcoJustice is also active in, in looking at this. So. Uh, when I was asked by the uh, marketing executive the other day who was very interested in this case, I, I, I did say, uh, look out, we're coming after you. <laughs> so you touched a little on the kinds of representations that give rise to these legal issues. Does this have to be a concrete statement like these are recyclable or can it be something more innocuous like suggestive imagery? What is the threshold for, for this? It actually um, is a fairly easy threshold to meet in that if the advertising leaves a general misleading impression, that's enough to be a violation. So if they make a, a misleading statement on a material aspect of the product, then that can be enough. And, and so the example of Keurig is a good one that, you know, they changed the plastic that they made the coffee pods out of into a type of plastic that theoretically, as a type of plastic, is recyclable. And, and then they slapped a recyclable label on it. But it was misleading in that because the most recycling systems in the country did not accept them for recycling, it was determined to be 
misleading. So the, the plastic, if you went to a lot of trouble and peeled off the tin foil and, and washed it out uh, and could get it through the machinery in a recycling system without gumming up the machinery, it's recyclable. And that is still a misleading ad uh, because it's not generally recyclable. So it's enough if, they, if they're doing things with imagery and with statements and with ads, like the ads that they ran about with the guy that was handcuffed that could basically peel, dump, and toss, uh, that that was enough to establish it was misleading. And, and EcoJustice has argued on the, the flushable wipes thing that advertising that these wipes were flushable was misleading because, yeah, you could flush them. You can throw the wipes <laughs> into the toilet and flush them. But they're, they're arguing that it's misleading because it gums up the sewage system and, and also releases microplastic and mi microfibers and that, that sort of thing. So, so there's a lot of ambit there. Um, so it doesn't have to be a really black and white untruth. If, if, it's, uh, if it's misleading and it's designed to get somebody to buy a product, that's not really as environmentally virtuous as they're claiming. Perfect, thank you. And so that leads to my last question, which I, I think I might know the answer to, but uh, how do you make your coffee in the morning? <laughs> well, I don't use Keurig. I, I don't use coffee pods. I, I just, uh, I use a percolator with a reusable filter, and then I've got a, a thermos, and I, I put my coffee in a thermos for the day, and it kind of takes me back to my dad taking a thermos to work, and works really fine, and coffee tastes pretty darn good. Thank you. All right, well, thank you again for taking the time to meet with me, and thank you as well for all the important and essential work you've been doing. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah. The researchathon that was mentioned earlier in the episode will be held on March 4th. If you are interested in participating, there will be a link posted in the show notes of today's episode. If you sign up for a time slot, you'll get a package that explains how to do the research and what it's all about. It's very accessible and you don't need to do any outside research or have any prior knowledge. The focus will be on researching advertisements looking for the next Keurig-like false advertising case. There will be a guest speaker and we will be providing lunch to all the participants. Thank you for listening and hopefully I'll see you at the researchathon.